Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussion. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, we will be joined by Gerard Ratavosian, candidate for California's 30th Congressional District. In this episode, I wanted to learn about Gerard's time as a congressional staffer, how his experiences as a staffer and an advocate for HIV awareness and cures could better teach us longevity advocates and what his priorities are and vision is for CA30. Without further ado, here's Gerard Radovosian. Live long and prosper. Gerard, thank you for uh, joining us today on the HBAN podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Dylan. It's, it's great yeah. to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. So for a lot of our audience is biotech entrepreneurs, scientists, and then also policymakers. And as our audience knows now, you are running for Congress in California. To, to get us started, can you talk about the issues that you're running on, especially how you view healthcare in this country, so we can get onto a broader discussion about longevity? Yeah, sounds good, Dylan. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, for folks who don't know, this is the 30th Congressional District in Los Angeles, the seat currently held by Adam Schiff. And in Los Angeles, and in particular in this district, we have major healthcare institutions, major community health centers. You've got uh, universities like nearby UCLA, USC. And so health is a big part of the fabric and the, the, the diversity that comes from the greatness of this particular district. So I'm a little biased in terms of how much I love the district, and it, it definitely contributes to why I'm running for Congress now. When I think about why I'm running, it's because so much of what is part of, for me, the American dream, whether it's access to education, access to, to, to healthcare, access to housing, all of those elements of the American dream that millions of families strive to achieve is getting harder and harder to reach. And there are a number of challenges that have to be addressed in Congress. I'm a son of immigrants that came to this country. My parents came to this country for a second chance. And that American dream worked for them. I well-educated, got my doctoral degree in public health and uh, took advantage of federal uh, student loans. Parents got access on the Affordable Care Act. That's how they got insurance because they were working for small businesses that didn't provide health care access. We bought our home using a first-time home buyer's tax credit that the federal government provided, and so many other ways that we were able to, to benefit from the promise of that American dream. And, and those are the issues that I'm fighting, um, fighting for more people to have access to, to elements of the American dream that they hold uh, near and dear to them. You mentioned healthcare as a uh, focus of mine. It's, it's absolutely right. I think healthcare is a focus of mine because not only of the work that I've done in the healthcare space, but it's also a focus of many people. I hear over and over again from people who live in the district about the rising cost of prescription drugs. They're concerned about losing access to their provider. We in LA have seen no shortage of protests that have happened by healthcare workers um, at Kaiser facilities and other medical uh, facilities who are uh, demanding more pay or demanding better working conditions, things I've heard about as I traveled across Africa. It's unthinkable, but it's happening in, in LA as well. So there are a number of elements within the healthcare system that are being challenged, whether it's better pay, better access that make healthcare top of priority, not only for me, but for people who are looking for more leadership in that regard. And then one more issue, Dylan, that is particularly concerning 
to me and I know to you as well, as we look at what's happened in the last four to five years, in particular post-COVID, there's been a very dangerous erosion of trust in public health and in public health agencies. And depending on your political point of view, there are different aspects of why that's happening. But for me, it's because the COVID response was highly politicized in the previous administration. And so was the agency's response to COVID. And I fear it has now expanded into uh, other areas of the health delivery, including um, routine immunizations that our country has been doing for, for decades. And and that's very dangerous. It's, it's a dangerous proposition that we have to, this is not saying that agencies like NIH and CDC are perfect, but we have to help restore and strengthen them and support them and ensure that they have the credibility, the evidence base and lead by science that we need them to have as it relates to challenging public health threats that are around the corner. And we know that there are many. We need more members of Congress who have that health background, who have that ability to converse and tackle these challenges in the healthcare space. And, and that's another major reason why I'm running. So trust in health and healthcare providers is something that I talk about more than I wish I I, I had to, right? Know, and it's something that comes yeah. up a lot with the longevity therapeutics world, right? How can we get everybody on board to take a therapeutic that will help them and their overall health as they age? And absolutely, the COVID uh, response definitely was divi divisive and definitely could have been better, better done. And so let me ask you this, what are your recommendations for getting the public to trust in science and scientific discovery and uh, innovation? Yeah, there are a number of things that can be done at multiple levels. I feel like we need to, at the most public levels, uh, I think as President Biden did when his administration started, and I was proud to have played a, a role in this as part of the new administration, he put the scientific leadership front and center as it related to the COVID response. And, and, and some of our country's leading scientists were uh, talking to the public about why certain interventions were necessary. I think we have to remove politics from science. We have to remove politics from uh, the decision-making of uh, these public health institutions, whether it's the FDA who's looking at approvals and new medicines, or whether it's the CDC looking at uh, approval of guidelines and or regulatory authorities that they have with regards to how health is, is implemented. We have to remove politics from all of the decision-making and ensure that we're following the data, we're following the science. And, and and that means appointing more leaders with experience and the credentials in the health space to be able to lead those health-specific conversations and those health agencies and remove the politics from the equation. I also feel like we, we have to do a better job of connecting physicians and nurses directly to people in terms of talking about why interventions, products, medicines are important. When you look at the erosion of trust in, in the public health, uh, physicians and nurses still remain high on the list of, of trust, and so do community leaders within a particular community. So we need to put them front and center uh, to be able to talk about healthcare issues and the benefits that come from certain interventions, whether it's a, a medical intervention, an immunization, et cetera. So number of things that we could do. And I think in Congress, we need to invest in public health. We need to invest in our public health system, in healthcare, because we know ultimately that investments lead to economic savings down the road, and it makes us better prepared for the next pandemic. COVID caught us off guard, and there's no excuse for that. Uh, we have been underfunding 
public health agencies and public health departments across the country for years. And there's a lot of catch up that we have to, to do. And some of it has already been done, but there's still a long way to go to ensure that they're fully funded to be able to, to respond to the next to the next threat. I definitely agree with you, Gerard. COVID was actually the thing that pushed me into this field, right? Seeing how this disease affected different age brackets. And it was the first thing that really turned me on to the fact that aging is something that we should be fighting for, specifically though, for the next pandemic, right? If our population was healthier and more had a more robust immune system on whole, right? We probably would have responded better to uh, uh, this disease. With that in mind, do you have any sort of stories about how COVID affected your thinking when it comes to healthcare policy? Are, are you focused mostly on pandemic preparedness or are you, you know, thinking more about Medicare for all type of things? Are you thinking about biomedical research? What's your main bread and butter in terms of stopping the next pandemic and making Americans healthier for longer? Good question, Bill. Yeah. When I look at healthcare issues that are priority for me and, and also I think priority for Congress as well. And I look at healthcare in in kind of three buckets. Well, we talked about the first one, which is how do we restore trust in public health institutions, right? We talked about removing politics from agency recommendations and managements. Uh, but the other two main buckets are one is around cost, of course. Uh, there are many drivers of healthcare costs that is part of that includes lowering drug costs, but a big part of it also includes all of the the middle management, so to speak, between uh, drug development and patient access, and including pharmacy benefit managers and other health insurance agencies that all have a role in, in developing um, costs. And so we have to look aggressively at why uh, costs have risen so dramatically and what we can do to bring them under control. We need more transparency in the way billing works that helps lower costs. We need and that investment in public health, as we were talking about earlier, also ultimately helps lower long-term costs. So I think lowering costs in healthcare space is a big part of my priorities. There are a number of things in the Inflation Reduction Act that President Biden and Congress push forward that are laudable, and, and that work is ongoing. I think the second major bucket, uh, the third, if you consider restoring trust in public health, the third most important piece for me is driving equitable um, access uh, and equitable results as it relates to healthcare delivery. And there are a number of challenges there with regards to equity. First, language access is a big issue. LA in particular, this district is one of the most diverse districts in the country. We have a large Filipino American population, a large Korean American population, a large Armenian American population, which is what I am. 15% of the electorate is Armenian. Language access uh, is a big issue with regards to accessing the healthcare system. There's so much systemic mistrust in public in the health system that some immigrant communities have with regards to to, to healthcare access. Uh, language is a big part of of breaking down some of that uh, mistrust and and ensuring people can 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 actually understand and access health services. Uh, there's still uh, uh, millions of people that are uninsured in this country, and we have to um, expand um, more access uh, to more health insurance. Um, so that more people can 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 have access to to care uh, when they need it, um, and then there are also within equity a number of healthcare areas that disproportionately impact particular communities, and and they happen to be minority communities. Uh, whether it, if you look at from the HIV standpoint, an issue that I've worked on my whole life, 
gay and bisexual men, African-American women continue to bear the brunt of the HIV pandemic in the U.S. after so many years of investment. Breast cancer is a big issue that impacts Black women in particular. And, and so there are a number of disparities within disease areas that need disproportionate amount of more resources, more attention, and that equity lens is what's going to help us actually make the gains that we need to ensure that we're reducing those disparities. Lowering costs, fighting fighting to advance equity, and then restoring trust in public health. Those, that's how I'm looking at healthcare issues broadly across, across the field. So that sounds like a great tagline for a campaign. I, I, are you running on that? <laughs> are those the three? I love know, it. I love it. Yeah. Representation matters. Part of that is being a public health doctor, but yeah, I like that healthcare slogan too. And actually, Dill, you're you'll be the first to know that I'm going to be releasing a healthcare plan in, in the coming weeks, and I'm happy to share that with you and your listeners uh, when it comes together. But that framework that I just described is what we'll include to organize the healthcare priorities. Absolutely, please do. That's uh, I'm, I, I love being in the know before others, so I'm, I'm honored that you're sharing this with me right now. Yes, please do. I'm sure the our audience and uh, this broader industry would be uh, interested to see what you're proposing. One of the things that resonated with me when you were just speaking now is focusing on equity and the diversity of our country means that different groups need different help in that healthcare sector, right? And if you look at life expectancy between demographics, there there is a disparity that if we closed would increase our overall life expectancy in this country would make more people healthier for longer. And in terms of the longevity dividend, which we'll get to in a little bit, we need everybody in this country as healthy as possible, not just a select few. So I definitely agree with your message there, equity and making sure that we give special attention to those who need it in this country is a great way to ensure the overall health of our country is better. So I'm with you there for sure. You also mentioned your background in HIV advocacy, which I did want to touch on because I believe that the longevity industry can learn a lot from past advocacy efforts, specifically in health, HIV advocacy, cancer advocacy, Alzheimer's, the list goes on. So can you give our listeners a little bit uh, about your background in HIV advocacy and maybe some lessons that we can learn as advocates for lo the longevity industry. Oh, absolutely. I, and I completely agree with you in terms of the parallels there within HIV and uh, longevity uh, community. There's actually, the HIV is moving into a longevity community. So I think in a few years, we'll see uh, almost a fusion of these two communities. There should be, um, because if you look at the number of people that are currently living which with with HIV in the United States and and there are about um 1. um 1.1 million people living with HIV in the United States over 53% are are age 50 and up and and the CDC projects that by 2030 so in just 7 years over 70% of people living with HIV will be over the age of 50 so let that sink in for a second and that tells you that that is because of the successes of the HIV response on multiple levels. First, the success of antiviral therapy that's been around for a couple of decades now. People living with HIV are aging because the ARVs, as we call them, are allowing them to live longer. And as people age with HIV, they're facing other age-related health issues that are more common in older populations. And so HIV becomes less of a problem for them, and they're more focused on cardiovascular disease, diabetes, certain cancers, as you mentioned, and also neurocognitive disorders as well. And the field of HIV is now morphing into broader health 
health and health outcomes. And it's because of the growing HIV population. There's also other issues related to this, and this is how I'm approaching longevity health, and which is why it's so important. And I appreciate the leadership that you and the coalition have brought. It's because as people age, there are they're managing multiple conditions, right? Whether it's HIV and something else or cancer and something else. In HIV in particular, there are immune system challenges that people have. And people with HIV may experience accelerated immune system aging, right? And that can impact their ability to fight other infections or respond to vaccines. And so that means that we need more science to understand the impact of this long of this longevity. And we might need new medications to, to be able to allow people to live even longer. And that's why this longevity work is so important. And there's also other, there's societal factors, mental health issues, medication interactions that are part of this as well. But but for us to advance in longevity medicine, we need to continue to incentivize the development and the approval of these kind of research uh, practices and ultimately drugs if they're needed. That's how, so very much so, that's how the field of HIV is thinking about this issue now and how I see it very much connected to the the work of longevity medicine. Absolutely. Something that shocked me got into this field was the fact that most people, when they pass away, are battling multiple comorbidities at once. And that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that aging was probably the thing that led to the fact that you're dealing with multiple comorbidities instead of one. And I totally agree with you. And it's interesting that you said that, what was the number again, exactly? Of 60% of, or going to be above 50 by 2030? Say that number one more time for our audience. Uh, 70%, 70% of people living with HIV. So roughly about 700,000 people by 2030 will be over 50. Yeah. That's, I think that's a testament to one, the advocacy efforts, right? The awareness efforts in younger generations. I think yeah. I, I remember when I was in health class in school, HIV and AIDS were freely talked about and it was not taboo. It was something that people discussed and had a, a knowledge about going into adulthood. And so I, from specifically from that standpoint, I want to ask you the, yeah. the awareness effort by the HIV community is tremendous. It's one of, if not the great success stories in health, in my opinion, really, because now, like you said, people with HIV live longer than the average person, right? That was not the case 40 years ago. And a lot of it is awareness and prevention and obviously better therapeutics and drugs. So can you talk about what the what the advocacy world was like when you were starting out maybe in the early 2000s, late 90s, perhaps? Because the attitudes definitely have changed. And yeah. so what, what caused those changes in attitudes? Were there specific groups that really did great work? Can you talk about the advocacy field of HIV a little, a little more? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, this is my favorite topic. I can talk about this for hours. So you're absolutely right. I think now people who take a public health class or a sex ed class or an infectious disease class, they learn about the model of the HIV response. And, and HIV from the beginning, this is even the, in the early 80s, has always been a movement for rights, a movement for visibility, a, mo- a movement for equality, right? And some of the early activists who helped started organizations like ACT UP, like Health Gap, and others who were fighting for for HIV, we're fighting the FDA to accelerate drug development and to accelerate research and so that their friends can survive. I've lost friends to HIV. Many of those early activists who, by the way, are still alive, but had friends who had passed because they did not have access to some of the scientific innovation that the FDA and others were, were working on. And their initial advocacy was 
really targeted towards, and, and Dr. Fauci was the head of the uh, NAID at the time, to, to accelerate clinical development and allow people who were dying uh, of the disease at the time to, to access those clinical trials. And so that revolutionized the way NIH approved and FDA approved, looked at drug approvals, clinical trials, et cetera, in a way that had benefit for the broader health areas beyond HIV. So that's, I think, a number, that's the first kind of achievement of, of the HIV response. The other way of, the other elements of it are looking at how HIV activists have always approached HIV from an issue of broader health, of broader health and broader equality. So it was around acknowledging that LGBTQ rights are part of people's identity, acknowledging that gender, gender equity are issues that relate to the HIV response. All of these broader societal issues were brought into the HIV response, and you had an advocacy community that was activated and mobilized and organized around advancing these issues. And then HIV activists were smart political activists. They were community organizers that they always targeted power. And whereas power is in Congress, power is in government agencies, power is sometimes at corporations, and power is sometimes at healthcare companies. And so they were smart about understanding who was in the way of advancing health access, who was in the way of advancing social justice, and that's where their advocacy was targeted. That's why they targeted Tony Fauci in the early days and why they targeted members of Congress since, CEOs of pharmaceutical companies. All of those elements are part of the, the, the health equation, so to speak. And so they worked with Republicans, Democrats. They increased the number of champions as it relates to the HIV response in Congress. When I was with Barbara Lee, I was Barbara, Congressman Barbara Lee's legislative director, and we started the Congressional HIV AIDS Caucus, which was a bipartisan caucus, one of the largest at the time of people who championed and cared about HIV. And that's because the HIV activists were smart about demonstrating their power in multiple congressional districts. And so that kind of organizing is something that I grew up and trained in, but also is very informative for other communities, including diabetes, cancer, TB, malaria, and just longevity community more broadly. So those are some of the hallmarks of the HIV response. And now, as we talked about, as you mentioned, Dylan, the successes of, of the HIV activism that have led to HIV being now a chronic disease, activists are also beginning to retool their own priorities to, to be able to focus on other areas that are important for the HIV response, but also societal issues that you know that that determine healthy living more broadly. I uh, I I got caught up when you talked about community organizing a little bit mm -hmm. at the end there because I was also before I started A4 Ally I was a community organizer political organizer. No, no, and so, so was I. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and that's I. What sold me on being a community organizer was Barack. That's how Barack Obama got his start. He started off as a community organizer as well. And there's a lot of power in being able to organize people. And so when I saw this longevity community, I saw very few, if any, organizers, political community organizers. And that's the role that I'm stepping in here and, and trying to uh, fill. And so just a little bit, can, can you talk about the value you've found in being a community organizer? And then I also want to talk a little bit about your time with Barbara Lee, because I find Washington absolutely fascinating, and I would love to hear your thoughts on what's going on right now, thoughts on how we as advocates can get the you know attention of more legislative directors around the country. But first, can you talk about the value in, in your career 
that you found from being a community organizer? Like, what, how does that help you get to where you are today? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I talk about being a community organizer. When I meet new groups, address new uh, voting community groups um, every day. I almost the first thing I almost it's all it's always the first or second thing I mention. I say I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, and I'm a community organizer by training. It is it is absolutely integrated into my DNA, how I conduct myself, and how I show up in terms of how I engage on different issues, the kinds of questions I ask about different issues to understand root causes of challenges. How I even identify issues to begin with. Is it something that's in my head or is it something that comes from what the community tells me is their priority, right? Those are the kinds of fundamentals that you learn as a community organizer. Once you figure out what the problem is, the second thing is you need to understand how to build the political power you need to make that change, right? And that comes with building relationships, establishing trust, figuring out who are the stakeholders that are part of the ecosystem that you're trying to shape. And sometimes as we talked about, it could be a pharmaceutical company. Sometimes it could be a hospital. Other times it could be an NGO. Then, then when you identify and build those relationships, it's about empowering and mobilizing community members to be able to educate and to organize and to build the network ultimately for that change. You, And then it's good old-fashioned coalition building, advocacy and lobbying, as you mentioned, educating members of Congress, advancing lobby days, action alerts. When when I was a staffer, we had somebody dedicated in our congressional office who would actually count the number of times we received a call on a particular topic. We would count the number of times we got a phone call or, or an action alert on a particular topic, an email on a particular topic. Those are important to the congresswoman, and they're important to all members of Congress. And so when you hear organizations say, write to your member of Congress, call your member of Congress. That actually does make a difference. And members of Congress, if they don't hear from an issue, if, if they don't hear about an issue, there's so many challenges and, and issues to, to consider, it, it doesn't become a priority, right? And so community organizing fundamentally teaches you how to build that power and how to, to be successful in the advocacy and lobbying you need to do to put an issue front and center of the attention of the people who have the power that you're trying to, to, to ultimately influence. And um, as it relates to me now, Dylan, I when I talk about why I want to go to Congress and 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 how I will develop priorities related to a health issue, it's about talking less sometimes and listening more and going to community organizations, going to NGOs who are at the front line of different issues here in LA and asking them about their experiences, their priorities, their challenges, and ensuring that's informing the way I'm developing my own priorities. And then when I get to Washington after I win next year, it's about ensuring that people who are impacted by a particular disease or who or by a particular issue in general have a seat at the table when it comes time to conceptualize a solution, whether it's a bill or a piece of or a letter or 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 funding in an appropriations bill, that community organizing informs every aspect of the way I think about engaging uh, different organizations and then bringing them in into the process. And there's actually formal training for community organizers. Midwest Academy is where I went, which is a, a real old school, progressive organizing school in Chicago, where Barack Obama actually went to. Maybe you went there too, Dylan. And that's where folks should look at that as a career tra trajectory, but also as a way to to organize um, themselves and, and, and help build leadership within a community for themselves to be able to help advance cause. 
Right, absolutely. That's that, that's that was my thought going into community organizing. The skills that you develop there are translatable to every single thing you do in life, right? Being able to organize a group of people, whether you are an engineer and you're trying to complete a project or you're trying to win some political cause, it translates to everything you do. I'm I'm glad to see community organizers running. It, it makes me feel it's it, it's it's almost like we went to the same college. I feel like we're alum, <laughs> alums yeah. of uh, alumni of uh, the community organizing world. I definitely agree with everything you said there. Now, can you talk a little bit about your time as legislative director for uh, Congressman Bar uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee? I'm fascinated by the world of lobbying as I've gone deeper into it. And just I just want to say also, everybody, you heard Gerard say, write to your congressperson and call, write. Uh, it does make a difference. You're hearing it from the horse's mouth here. It does make a difference. So please do that when we suggest it, when A4LI suggests it. But what, what I've come to learn over the last year and a half doing this is that con congresspeople are so busy. The amount of things that come on a congressperson's desk every day is overwhelming. And a 20-minute conversation that you have with a congressperson is followed up by another 20-minute conversation from someone else, and then another one, and then another one. And so- right. My question is, how can we as advocates better stand out and get the attention of these key stakeholders and, and members of Congress, aside from writing letters and calling and emailing? Do you have any other tips on how we can get our, our issues to the front of the pile and our faces more involved and whatnot? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the... You're first of all absolutely right in terms of how a member of Congress is. You mentioned 20 minutes. If you get 20 minutes, you're lucky. Sometimes it's a five minute hallway conversation, and even that is a that's successful. The there's so much in front of com, Congress uh, and members of Congress, and any particular time that no one person, as you said, can really manage it in an effective way. Very and most of the operators on the Hill. Are, are happen to be younger people who are fresh out of college or, or fresh out of grad school, like I was, who are not experts on any of these topics, let alone the 10 topics that they have to cover, right? Um, as a staffer, I, now I happen to be a legislative director for, for the congresswoman. So naturally, I was in charge of the overall legislative portfolio for the, for the congresswoman. But I also had to cover, I think it was, I can't remember, but over 10 different topics, environmental issues, healthcare issues, education issue, issues, transportation issues, and each staffer typically c covers that many issues. So naturally, you become a generalist about topics. I mean, where am I going with this? The easier you make it for a member of Congress and their staff to be able to be a champion of your issue, the, the easier you make it for them to be moved by a particular issue, bringing people who are personally impacted by a particular issue, whether it's cancer, or HIV, a mother who's lost a, a child, perhaps, to an issue. Those stories make a big impression, whether it's on a staffer or on a member of Congress. And and so you have to break it down and you have to show how you're evidence-based in your advocacy. You have to show the data when the data is available. You have to show your strength in numbers. When it's all packaged that way, Dylan, it becomes easier and more likely for the member of Congress that to champion the issue, to to join a caucus, to sign on to a letter, or to really advance advance that issue in Congress. There are reasons there are reasons why there are a lot of caucuses on the Hill, and that's because 
There are a lot of organizations and groups that help organize and bring focus to that particular topic. From my perspective as a Hill staffer, that was an effective meeting and or an effective engagement with an outside organization was always one where the group was, they were personal about their experiences and they were smart about how they packaged information and made it easy to understand for a staffer who in six minutes when that meeting is done is onto a, a, a whole other topic. I, I would say that's number one. Number two is take the issue home. And what do I mean by that is if there are power that you're building in your coalition with people who are impacted by a particular issue in the city and state where the member of Congress is from, show that power in the city and state where the member of Congress is from. Each member, each congressional office, as, as your listeners know, have a home district office. Uh, sometimes they have multiple offices. Senators have multiple offices across different states, across the state. And so ensure that the advocates who live in those states are also meeting with the district offices of those states because the district offices are always communicating with the Washington offices as well. Showing those personal connections is always important. And that was what we did when we started the PEFAR program under President Bush. We talked earlier about the successes of the HIV movement. We didn't talk about the global HIV response. President Bush in 2003 basically started the largest ever global health foreign assistance program known to mankind. And that was the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, a multi-billion dollar initiative to fight HIV around the world. That program still is ongoing. When I left the State Department, I was a senior advisor at that program. And one of the hallmarks of what made that so successful is that the advocates were able to show how fighting HIV was important, not only in Washington, but also in the Midwest, in Kansas, in, in Idaho, in, in North Carolina, in, in Colorado, and members of Congress, Republican, Democrat, came together to fight and, and to support that piece of legislation. So showing that power both in Washington, but then also in the home district is very important to advance any particular issue. So... Everything you've said to me is you're like reaffirming me right now. <laughs> I'm glad. Good. You are. And I'm glad we're having this conversation. However, the fact of the matter is a lot of these political efforts, large political advocacy efforts need funding to move. I don't think the HIV uh, advocacy effort would be where it was today if people didn't give money to advocates to advocate. That's true. Mm -hmm. So how do you recommend advocacy organizations in the health space for HIV, for longevity, for cancer research, whatever it may be. How do you see the, what are some of the best practices you can tell our audience about raising small dollar donate donations from everyday individuals who maybe aren't super invested in the longevity space or the HIV space? Like how do we reach common people to get them to support this issue so we can truly create a grassroots effort? Yeah, funding is crucial. For any effort, right? I, th I think as I'm drawing from my experience in HIV, we relied on a whole diverse set of actors and funders. So funding came from pharmaceutical companies who have an interest in, in a particular topic, and that's true for aging, right? So think of which pharmaceutical companies are have aging or who are working on a pipeline of products to target chronic diseases or older Americans and make connections 
with those companies and advocacy efforts. That's sometimes, that's often done uh, in the HIV space. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Pharmaceutical companies, and uh, I did my dissertation on this, have a very important role to play in advancing innovation uh, and protecting intellectual property is a big part of allowing that IP, the, the innovation to, to be able to, to, to continue. And, and, and they have an interest in, in supporting an advocacy community to support the uptake of of, the, of of their products or, or 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 of the issue in general, right? And so that's part of the conversation. Uh, and I and I think advocates shouldn't be shy about pushing companies to be able to do more to help the community advance their health access issues. I think looking at foundations is also a big part of what the HIV community does. That's important. And then putting a a, a face to a story is always impactful. Like we were discussing earlier, uh, we all have family members who whether it's our parents or grandparents who are impacted by living longer, right? And and and, and aging. So in, in some ways, the aging community is already a, a grassroots movement, whether it's organized that way or not, right? Because we all have a, a grandparent or or a parent who who is impacted by this. And so connecting the dots in, in that way and ensuring that it's tied to how we need to advance the science or our understanding on the biological processes of aging and how they contribute to age-related mortality, that is something that anyone should be able to make a connection if they have a grandmother or a parent or a grandfather or or, or they have an older member of their family. And so I think we just have to, we haven't thought of it that way sometimes. And, and, we, and, and that's why the work that your coalition is doing to put a focus specifically on that is so important because we almost take it for granted that the science that we have or the advan- advancements that are being made just are going to trickle down to to older Americans. And that is not true. And so we need to create specific incentive structures and advocacy support, agency attention for these issues to be able to advance. One of the first things with the HIV, going back to the HIV ex- experience, we created the, uh, an, an HIV agency within NIH, right? And that was important because we wanted to focus on HIV research. Uh, and then there's an office of HIV research, OAR. Uh, and that OAR office gets a specific appropriations earmark. And that's all part of successful advocacy that any community should undertake, whether it's and for aging, obviously, the, nat- the it's the National Institute on Aging supporting NIH more broadly, but also within that specific institute, the focus areas of the Aging Institute and what they're looking at and ensuring that they're funded adequately to be able to advance their priorities. And so that's how I would look at it um, from a grassroots movement and building broader support for for the research that we need for longevity medicine. Something that you said before was you mentioned that everybody has, everybody knows an advocate, right? Everybody has a, a parent or a grandparent that is aging and therefore we all have an advocate, a, the right word constituents that, that that is affected by this. I, I don't know the right term, but there are there, there's a massive aging population, right? And so there's a lot of people that are impacted by this. One of the things though that I find interesting, and, and by the way, we're coming close on time. So I want to give you a little time to discuss the campaign with our audience and give them ways that they can get involved with you and learn more about what, what you're doing in California's 30th. But just one thing I want to talk about before we get to that is, you know, Aging advocates and HIV advocates and cancer advocates, the aging advocates have a bit of an uphill challenge in terms of patient advocacy from the way I see it, because 
a cancer patient can come into Congress and the visual is very clear. Uh, it's very obvious who the cancer patient is and who you're advocating for. Same thing in HIV uh, advocacy, right? The, there, there's, there's a clear visual of who we're advocating for here. With the aging field, we don't feel sympathy. People don't feel sympathy when they see a 95-year-old who's still walking around and able to live their life, right? Mm. And so it, it's it, my, my point is it's harder to have that visual for the advocacy effort, especially for the patient advocacy effort. So do you have any ideas on that, how, how to overcome that as advocates? How do we make it clear that this is different than cancer research and Alzheimer's? I, it, it's, it's a difficult question, so I wouldn't be surprised if you don't know. We can definitely loop back on it, but it's a unique issue to this field that other health advocacy spaces don't really have as much. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying there a little bit? Yeah. Absolutely. No, I definitely do. And this goes back to community organizing 101, where you tailor the message specifically to the target, right? And what I'm thinking, Dylan, is depending on what your advocacy goal is, and that determines who your target is, then you can tailor the message accordingly. I wonder if there are arguments to be made about why supporting research to to develop and approve drugs to, to target, let's say, an, an older population, how that contributes to more reduction in healthcare costs uh, down the road. And you could, that message is not something that all targets would care about, but certain ones that are concerned about healthcare costs. And I told you earlier about how that's one of my three pillars certain targets can, can, that's a way of putting that issue on, on, on their radar. There are also other ways of looking at the issue and perhaps, and I don't know if these are true, Dylan, I defer to you and your coalition, but are there ways to connect the older population's needs to creating more societal gains, economic improvements? Uh, I think those, some members of Congress oh, yeah. are, are impacted by economic arguments. Right. Are not. Some are impacted by human rights arguments. I, I Some people believe a 95-year-old has all the same equal rights to live as, a, as an 18-year-old. And so I think we have to be iterative and nimble and, and adjust their messaging, be evidence-based, of course, but adjust the messaging according to the target and what the advocacy goal is. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you also said that because that is the longevity dividend argument is something that we've been leaning into as advocates for a while now. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it is the kind of cure-all for not having this visible patient advocate we can advocate for. And it's incredible. It's an incredibly strong argument, right? Um, saving on healthcare costs, increasing productivity within our population are things that all Congress people should care about. So that is something we definitely... Are, are pushing. And I'm glad that you said that. Um, however, though, we, we only have a couple minutes here. Gerard, if you could you go into what the campaign trail looks like in the coming months, what you're looking forward to, any major dates, key dates that you want to share with our audience. And then can you also tell our audience how they can get more involved with you and, and follow you? Yeah, thanks so much. This is It's been such a great conversation. And thank you for creating the space and, and the leadership that you've provided over so many years on this on, on broader public health issues. I'm excited. And you hear me talking about these issues just gets increases my heart rate because I get really excited about being able to tackle these issues myself in Congress. I am running for an open seat in Los Angeles, which is the seat that is currently being held by Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff is running for Senate. 
And so there's an opening in, in, in the Los Angeles district that I was born and raised in, and I'm running to bring LGBTQ representation, Armenian representation, public health leadership to, to that particular district, and which happens to be one of the most diverse districts in the country. We have California's primary this election cycle is moved up. Some people might remember Super Tuesday primary in June. This year it's in March and the California primary is on March 5. And that's a big milestone uh, for our campaign because we will be one of several people who will be trying to get in the top two uh, of, of, of that primary process. And the top two people would, would will advance in the November uh, final election in 2024. So for our campaign, the next three, four months is the most critical because we every dollar we raise Every volunteer we sign up is converted into voter engagement, voter participation, uh, and voter turnout, which is the most important part of any campaign. I spend actually two, three hours a day door knocking myself, and it's the it's my favorite part of the day because I connect directly with the voters. I hear about their challenges. I hear about um, their concerns of Congress, and people are tired, Dylan, of political fight of infighting. People are tired of uh, a Congress that they consider to be broken and not working for them, and people want to see change, right? And and so those are the kinds of issues that are at stake in this election in Los Angeles, but also across the country. Not to mention foreign policy priorities, which is a whole other podcast. But but so those are the issues that are important in my race. I have a a website which is and we could share it with the listeners. It's gerar4ca.com, J-I-R-A-I-R, for C-A. Dot com. Our social media also is Gerard for CA. Folks can sign up to volunteer if you're in Los Angeles. And the, the district includes cities like Hollywood, West Hollywood, Burbank, Glendale, where they were the, or the epicenter of where you've heard stories about the writer's strike and the actor's strike that have come to resolution, thankfully, this week. That's this district. It also includes Sunland and Tahunga in Pasadena. And so it's one of the most diverse and exciting districts in the country. If you are in, if you're listening from that part of the country or any part of the country, reach out to our campaign. If you're motivated by bringing more representation to Congress, more public health leadership to Congress, those are the things that we're fighting for. And, and we're looking for volunteers, we're looking for donations, and we're looking for advocates who want to be part of that change that we want to see in Congress. So we're, the next four months are crunch time as we accelerate our door knocking, accelerate our fundraising, and then do the voter engagement that we need to re remind people to vote uh, in the upcoming primary, which is going to happen really quickly after the new year. So it's exciting. Very exciting. You're uh, you're making me nostalgic for election time, knocking yeah. on doors and whatnot. So, Gerard, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. This was not only an exciting conversation for our listeners, but I feel like I truly walked away with some knowledge that I didn't have before this. So thank you for joining. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Uh, and thank you for being a health advocate running for Congress, because we need more of you out there. So Thank you. If you want to get in touch with Gerard's campaign, we'll leave links on the social media post that goes along with this podcast. But Gerard, thank you very much. And we will be following with great enthusiasm over the coming months. Thanks again, Dylan. Thanks to the listeners. Thanks to all the advocates who spend time writing to Congress, picking up the phone to make phone calls. They really do make a difference. And 
and also engaging with campaigns because that also ultimately makes a difference as well. So thanks again and look forward to listening to this and other episodes in the future. Absolutely. Thanks, Gerard. Live long and prosper. Thank you, Gerard, for making the time to join us today. For those of you listening at home, I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and informative as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. H-SPAN will return in a few weeks, but until then, let's live long and prosper.